Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 288 with my guest, Cynthia Pena. She is an associate uh, clinical social worker. Um, She has her master's in social work and uh, she's uh, working on her hours to become licensed. Um, That might have been the longest introduction ever. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. From medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Uh, MetalPod is also the Twitter handle you can follow me at. But go to the website, check it out. Um, every episode we've ever recorded is available there. Um, you can also um, find it on iTunes. Um, but at our website, you can read blogs, guest blogs. You can join the forum. Um, you can fill out surveys. Maybe we'll read your survey on the show. Um, or you can browse through the surveys and see how other people have filled out and the things that they've shared um, because I only read a small portion of uh, the surveys that are filled out on on this show just because of time constraints and et cetera, et cetera. Um, what do I want to say? Uh, San Francisco was fantastic. Um, the live shows were great. Thank you so much to all of you that uh, helped make it possible. Um, both of the shows were sold out and it was at a great venue and... Uh, East Bay Express newspaper did a great job of supporting it. Uh, Glenn Washington and Jamie DeWolf were great guests. You will uh, hear those episodes at some point in the in the near future. Um, just loved it. It was like a dream come true. Just everything about the 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 whole week. I mean, even down to every meal that I had was good. Um, it was just I just felt like the luckiest guy in the world. And um, yeah, life has been really good lately. Um, the Adderall is um, still working great, and um, I, you know, it used to be that every day it felt like there was a magnet in my bed, and it was really hard to get out of bed, and it was really hard to stay out of bed, and I don't even think about that now. I just don't even feel that pull. I feel so much less anxious. Um, 
it's um it's been a game changer so i'm glad i got over my uh my shame of taking it and um listen to somebody else's experience who uh who started taking it uh let's get to some some surveys oh i also want to remind you guys uh september 23rd 24th and 25th is la Podfest. Um, they are almost sold out on tickets for attending the event in person. Um, so go to LAPodfest.com if you still want to um, try to get tickets to that. And it's basically a weekend pass to see it. But uh, you can um, buy a streaming pass, and you don't have to be there, obviously, to watch that. So you can watch any of the podcasts you want live um, or for up to 30 days afterwards. And there's a ton of great podcasts that are uh, that are recording there. And you can get five bucks off if you uh, use the offer code HAPPY when you're checking out. Uh, so it's, it would be $25 with five bucks off, and it'd be 20 bucks. To be able to see, I would imagine, 30-plus uh, podcasts, I think there's going to be there. And um, some really, really, really uh, great ones. All right, let's get to some surveys. Uh, this is uh, these are all from the struggle in a sentence survey and this was filled out by whoop de doo who uh, writes about um, they don't specify what their gender is they write about their anorexia my anorexia is my coping mechanism but also my slow suicide attempt um, about their dermatillomania the worst part about it isn't the marks it leaves but the fact that they're my doing a snapshot from their life I'm in the kitchen washing down some yogurt in the sink. It's 9 a.m. and my parents are in the garden. When they come back inside, it'll look like I've had breakfast. Uh, and then any comments to make the podcast better, they write a new journal topic every week. Not something that needs to be shared, just a topic that the listeners write about. An example could be, what keeps you going? Or, if nothing held me back, not even myself, I would blank, 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 which I think is a great idea. Um, so if you would email me and um, if you're interested that might be a fun thing to do in the forum for people to join into and then every once in a while I could poke my head in and and read some of them uh, on the air possibly but that might be a, a, a nice thing so I could create that thread uh, for you in the forum and then you could be um, you would be able to just create um, whatever question of the week you would you would like because uh, at this point, there's so many surveys, different surveys that I have on the website, um, and I'm the only one um, basically <laughs> doing everything with the podcast, um, that it uh, it would just be a little too much more on my plate to uh, to do that. So email me, if you would, uh, whoop-de-doo. I've always wanted to say that that phrase, email me, whoop-de-doo. This is filled out by Borderline, but not the fun Madonna song. Oh, the names. The names are so awesome. Um, she writes about uh, biting her nails and cuticles compulsively. Uh, I do it until I bleed and then putting band-aids on to stop myself from gnawing and picking at myself and then peeling the band-aids off before work because what kind of weird 35-year-old professional has three band-aids on every morning and then picking and biting and gnawing all day long only to start the cycle again when I get home each night. God, that sounds so, so unmanageable. Uh, about her codependency. If only you had made better choices, my life would be perfect. That is fantastic. About her anger issues. If only I could bend metal with my fists, it would get this poison out of me. Those are great. Thank you for sharing those. 
that weird guy writes about, um, uh, he doesn't say what it is, but he writes, my happiness depends entirely on whether or not you respond to my messages. That might be love addiction. Uh, snapshot from his life, sitting in my room trying to get drunk and brave enough to message you and usually passing out before I can see your response. I hope you go talk to somebody about that instead of just hoping that things will will change because it sounds like uh, you got you got a lot uh, going on there. Uh, this is filled out by Mo, and he writes about his anxiety. 500 Firefox tabs open and blaring at full volume. That's so fantastic, except for the fact that you're using Firefox. For that, I shame you. For that, I cast you to the bowels of hell. It's actually, the bowels of hell have not been tossing many people in there lately. So you're going to find it pretty roomy and almost to your liking, liking, except it's going to be 1,600 degrees. About his PTSD, a horror movie villain that refuses to die. A snapshot from his life. Stayed awake till 6 a.m. last night, ruminating on a single conversation the previous afternoon. Oh, my God. I think so many of us relate to that. And one of the things I'll do is I'll ruminate over and over how I should have said something, what I should have done right, how I could go back in time and, and correct it. Uh, this is filled out by Borderline Personality Disaster, and she writes about her BPD. It feels like living in a thick cloud of dissociation. Snapshot from her life. Someone asked me what I did today, but I don't know. I wasn't there. Wow, that's, that's profound. That is profound. Tattoo Hoarder writes about his codependency. Climbing Mount Everest would be a meek task juxtaposed to me telling another person that I don't like them. And about his alcoholism and drug addiction. It's the family heirloom that I wish I could take to Antique Roadshow and shove up my mother's asshole on national television. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job Mental illness is convincing myself I'm so alone. Why hypervigilance I should try to do something. I hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality. Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed. Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house. I was able to get myself out of Scientology. Put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old. Then you just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house and you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage. You know, so I planned my suicide. Because you won't ask for help. I'm asking for help. I'm not pretending everything's okay. I'm not trying to do it alone. I'm really happy that I did it because a lot of good things have happened since then. That, that option just evaporated and I'm, I'm not going to kill myself. I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants. I'm here with uh, Cynthia Pena or Cindy. Either one. You're, you're okay with me calling you either one. Yeah. Um, she is an associate clinical social worker. She's uh, working on her hours. How how long until you uh, will have your hours and get your license? I'm pretty much halfway through, if not more than halfway. Okay. So soon. And you're based here in Los Angeles, and your uh, boyfriend, Alan, and your sister, uh, Perla. Are, uh, Perla. 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 Oh, I thought it was Perla. Perla. So in Spanish, it's Perla. Which is I'm not pearl. even going to try to say that. Yes, <laughs> I know my uh, my good friend uh, Claude Mann. His uh, he's one of the guys I uh, did the TV show with. His wife is uh, Perla, and oh. we we pronounce her name Perla. And and she actually owns the uh, domain name Perla dot com. 
Oh, interesting. That's oh, a, so that means you can't have it. <laughs> maybe she'll sell it to you. Um, and she's an amazing singer. Perla oh. Battaglia, have you ever heard of her? No. Amazing singer. She sang uh, back up with Leonard Cohen for a long time. And uh, she's mostly a solo artist now, but uh, yeah. What's her background? You'd, is she Mexican? She uh, is um, part, I believe her father is um, Argentinian mm-hmm. and her mother is Mexican. Okay. Mm and uh, yeah, what, what is the word? Uh, mestizo? Is that uh, for somebody who is, um, I don't know. Do you know? I'm so white. No. <laughs> um, I spend a lot of my day uh, oppressing people, so I don't have time to <laughs> get to learn uh, all the ins and outs of their, their culture. I, <laughs> I have to go shine the boot that I keep on their neck. Oh, um, my <laughs> Um, but if you ever get a chance to listen to her music, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, I definitely Beautiful. Will. And, um, where, where do we start with your story? You seem very young. I did not expect you to be I this young. I look younger than I am. Okay. Um, I'm 28. Okay. But a lot of people, I mean, that's You actually, look like you could be 19. Yeah. You know, that's actually an ongoing problem. Not problem. I don't want to say problem, but it's a concern for mm-hmm. my clients, especially adults. When I worked with adults, um, I would constantly be asked my age. And I'm sure there was a lot of resistance. And I, th- I think it was more of the reluctance was I didn't have enough experience like life experience and how would i be able to help them with whatever was going on and a lot of my clients have been in the system for a long time so with chronic mental illness so yeah that was a big and when you say the system do you mean the the justice system the mental health system mental health yeah the mental health so the county mental health okay yeah um which i would imagine is kind of uh a safety net uh, with a lot of holes in it. it, it <laughs> <laughs> I've I've just got out of a job. Um, I don't want to say the county just because I want to keep some kind of anonymity, but um, it was it was triggering me all day, in, in every what day. Just I mean the helplessness. It made it difficult for me to help my clients. I was working with uh, clients with severe and persistent mental illness, and we were required to do both therapy and case management, and I had a caseload of 60. You've got to be kidding me. No. And how frequently would you see everybody once a week? It was what they liked, and I say that with with, uh, quotes because it was impossible. They They would ask us or they would kind of say, this is what you guys should be doing, but yet it was almost like known that it was impossible. Yeah. Um. So we were we were required to see our clients once a month, but case management is not a once a month thing. It's like an everyday thing. So we were also in like char- like what does that involve the, the case management? So just to give an example, I I would get calls from clients regarding losing uh, or being out of meds right so that was our responsibility shoot we would have to consult with the psychiatrist let them know hey such and such ran out of meds they're requesting this amount until their next appointment so we would get the okay from the psychiatrist call their pharmacy do a um 
a 30-day bridge or whatever it might be until their next psychiatry appointment, reschedule their next psychiatry appointment if they didn't have any, and what like anything else they needed. Along with that, we also had to do documentation for each and every service. The way they, they worded it was anytime the client's name comes out of your mouth, you have to write a note. <laughs> so I would go... Are you sure you weren't in hell? <laughs> It, was it, it, felt was like it, it warm? Was it really warm? It felt like it. I was burning every day. It was It was literally uh, every day I would have about 20 notes to write. And then sometimes things would happen, right, that would take me away from my desk that I couldn't get to the note. By the end of the week, I'd have 50 to 60 notes to write. Were you ever able to take a lunch break? Actually, a lot of us didn't even take lunches, and if we did, we would be in front of the uh, like the computer writing. That down. must have been not too healthy for you guys no. to, to not have your a, a time to recharge your battery during the no, day. No, it was anxiety provoking, and I struggle with anxiety. That's kind of my big issue. So I would have times where I'd have to lock my door, lay a yoga mat on the floor, and do deep breathing, and just try to like do as much. Would that help a lot? It did. I tried to do meditation, um, but I would, I'd have to do certain things, but it would just go back into the same environment, and it was really unhealthy. I'd also have to do assessments and care plans. And And you no longer work at that county? I no longer work in that place yet, no. Okay. So I had to leave. We were also LPS certified, which means we could place holds on people. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, with my client population a lot of our clients were decompensating so i would get a call from somebody saying hey my daughter is just losing touch with reality she's acting odd um i need you to come out drop everything we're doing cancel our appointments go out to the home and do like a 30 uh, or no not 30 a three hour hold we'd have to call the ambulance we had to call the police and then we'd have to write the hold ourselves it was under our name so that was another thing. And then that would backlog everything. And, and then, then I'd have to would write have to be rescheduled. <laughs> yeah. Right? And then I'd have to write four notes about the one hold I wrote. Oh my God. Yeah. So are you in a private practice now? No, I'm still doing uh county mental health. I'm an outpatient clinic, but it's towards it's geared towards children, but it's a lot more reasonable, I guess. I well, I, it's chronic mental illness with children and their families. Obviously, if you have children, you have to work with their families. But your caseload only goes up to 10 and 12 where I'm at right now. Oh, that must be a, a it's, relief. It's a relief. What do you find the big difference to be between working with adults and working with children? The biggest is the family collaboration. I mean, when I worked with adults um, with severe and persistent illness, obviously, Obviously, there was a lot of family collaboration because a lot of them were lower functioning and they needed the family support. A lot of them lived with their family. They had to basically provide extra support for them to come to their appointments and get their medications. So in a sense, we did have that collaboration with the family prior, but this is a whole different um, this is a whole different thing. So we have to see the clients twice a week because I'm working with um, severe cases and we would require the parent to be involved in one of them mm-hmm. so we would have like family therapy and we i mean in a lot of it it's, it's so healthy to see moms or p- parents come in and do like just play therapy with their children and kind of model for them what kind of regulation they would be providing to their children or modeling what kind of uh 
effective adaptive coping skills or problem solving for their children that way they could both regulate each other so it's a lot of psychoanalysis which i'm really into so did you have you found that um the concept of being present with your child was uh, something that a lot of parents it wasn't really on their radar they they didn't understand how important it is to um, kind of be engaged with yes. their child um, actually that reminds me I had uh, a client recently I did an intake and I'm gathering information right now I'm just kind of in the beginning process and the child is six years old and um, the mom was talking about how out of control this child is and how he's resistant to going to school and just it's really sad to hear these kind of symptoms in such a young child he's six years old just turned six and I was getting information from their family background and she disclosed to me that she struggles with anxiety and I kind of tried to link the two and I said I wonder if he's going through anxiety too and this is kind of how it's manifesting for him and it was like a light bulb like I never thought about that and I would never even be able to talk to him like that because I'm mean to him right now like I can't even be nice to him but I don't think parents realize that a possibility of their children experiencing you know mental illness in a in a different form than they do and just being and present I, and regulating for and them. I would imagine too it's uh, unsettling to that child uh, to see their parents so anxious it is extremely unsettling for a child to see their parents dysregulated and you're modeling maladaptive coping for them if you're dysregulated. So it's kind of like the cycle that just continues to go. So mom is dysregulated, child is dysregulated. What does he internalize from mother being dysregulated and it going back back and forth? Wouldn't it be great if we could get cars to run on uh, the cycle of f uh, familial dysfunction? They <laughs> yeah. would just run forever. It would it, never end. It would we never, would never end. need gas. You would never need <laughs> gas again. And if it did start to sputter out, you would just throw in a holiday. <laughs> yeah. it, would just, it would just kick in again. Now, you t you use the phrase um, persistent and severe mental illness. Yeah. What types? Um, oh, my stupid software just had a little glitch. Sorry, we just had an audio drop out for a second. Uh, you use the phrase uh, persistent and severe mental illness. What kind uh, are you referring to or give me some examples in mm -hmm. adults and what kinds in children? So for adults, uh, my case will look like schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia, schizoaffective, bipolar, uh, major depressive disorder, um, and pepper and some personality disorders in there. Substance use. Substance what use. were the most difficult? I'm still looking for a uh, therapist who has worked with somebody who agrees that they have narcissistic personality disorder. Who's worked with somebody that agrees? Who's worked with somebody, yeah. Amen. Because it seems by its very definition, a narcissist would never... I was going to be looking never... for the rest of your life. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't know. I don't know if they're out there. Yeah. But... Um, and, and children, what are we talking about? Um, you know... When I started there, what I was told is you're going to be working in the intensive side and it's with chronic mental illness, children with chronic mental illness. Um, what I've seen since I've been there, because I haven't been there that long, I'm still transitioning, um, is adjustment disorders. PTSD is a big one. Uh, and give me some examples of the things that have caused the PTSD. Uh, 
number one is sexual abuse. I see that time and time again. Um, stressors like environmental stressors like moving um domestic violence um kids are uprooted from their families because of um abuse and mm-hmm. uh dcfs involvement uh, the the kids that are being sexually abused um m- the majority of them have been taken out of the home i take it yes or? okay so a lot of them are dcfs involvement um, they're in foster, foster care. care yeah where sadly a lot of them wind up getting abused again or is that yes. a myth I don't want to generalize because I have I have a client right now um, who was he was in foster care for a while and he ended up being um, not fully adopted, but he has legal guardianship and just amazing, amazing parents they are and, and really wanting to help the child. Um, he's now a teenager, but it, it it's great to, to see some of these people that really want to help the children, whereas some people that haven't or they're not in the best place to get a child with these kind of issues and they're being triggered themselves obviously with whatever they bring to the table um that kid that you were talking about is is he doing better now with that with those foster parents that are seem to be engaged you know he was he's been in the system for a while and I just got him but I was looking at previous assessments and uh, documentation to see how what what was the past uh treatment and he seems to be doing really well. I mean he still struggles with his own um issues and there's still things that continue to be triggered in him but as far as where he used to be there's been great improvement and I do think that's a, that's definitely attributed by the the environment he has now. Uh, one of the things when we corresponded, um, you said that you would be interested in talking about is viewing mental illness through the psychoanalytic lens. What, what do you yes. mean specifically by that? So I have a great value for psychoanalysis or dynamic therapy, and that's because that's kind of the, my work. That's the work that I've been doing. Personally. Um, personally. For, uh, on yourself. On myself. Yeah. So, and to be honest with you, I attribute my my clinical strength to my own work, being able to do my own um, analysis, I guess you could call it, has strengthened me as a therapist. I can't imagine a therapist that doesn't do their own work. Um, When I first started grad school, my aunt is actually an MFT. Mm -hmm. So... And you have your master's in social work, correct? I have my master's in social work and she got it in counseling and um, she told me, "I'm, I'm in this psychoanalytic group and it's specifically for therapists so people that are in this profession and you know you should probably think about joining it they had different groups different times obviously I couldn't be in the group that she was in Um, I joined my first year of grad school knowing that I'm going to be triggered obviously even in school and I should probably start working on the things that I probably have left undone and then strengthen myself so that when I do start I'm going to have some, I mean, obviously I'm still being triggered now, but I do feel that it's, it's improved a lot of things and it's made me that much better as a therapist. But so I started this psychoanalytic group and it is all therapist or in somehow in the profession, we've had psychologists and stuff like that. But we, we all kind of, I mean, the, the beautiful thing about a group is that somehow we're all triggering each other. 
And that's kind of where our work is. Uh, I've done individual work sometimes with this particular therapist, with um, an analyst. But um, I think the biggest thing that I've noticed, and, and it was kind of interpreted for me by my therapist, was it was a conversation about actually when I was, before Alan and I uh, got together, when I was single, I remember saying like, I love being by myself and I don't need to be in a relationship and I'm not one of those girls that needs to be with somebody you know I, I had friends that can, couldn't be alone and that wasn't that wasn't me I didn't feel the need of being in a relationship I actually felt happier not being in a relationship at that time and most and what was interpreted to me was that's where you're not being triggered the reason why you avoid relationship is because you're not triggered in that space. Mm. You're not challenging yourself. And that's why group is so important for me because I'm constantly being triggered in group. If I do one-on-one, yes, I'm doing work, but I'm not challenging myself where I'm being triggered by, by interpersonal relationships. Mm. And that's kind of the, the essence of psychoanalysts. It's how you know, your worldview becomes what it is by your past interpersonal relationships. Have you, have you ever read the article called Co-Narcissism by Dr. Alan Rappaport? I haven't. If you haven't, we, well, we actually did a mini episode on the podcast where I got his permission and I just read it. It's but like a five-page uh, article, and he talks about the dynamic of growing up with a narcissistic parent mm-hmm. and the, the traits that they have and the traits then that the child... You know, the coping mechanisms that you develop as a, as a mm-hmm. kid and the way you view the world and mm-hmm. the children of narcissists tend to view the way, view the world, uh, the way they viewed their dynamic in their family. They, they believe that other people are going to look at them the way their parent, uh, looked at them. So that, that makes sense to me mm-hmm. that you would be uh, triggered here and there when you think you're being judged or abandoned or, mm-hmm. um, what, what are the, the triggers for you that, um, uh, fear of intimacy. It sounds. It sounds like is is um, one, or is it being needed, or what? I think it's a little bit of everything. Um, it's funny because I've learned more about myself by how other people are triggered by me. Because sometimes I don't. That's interesting. Yeah. So I've had a very interesting reaction a couple of times. So Be- before we go any further, um, t- we use the term a lot, but I don't know if you ever really stopped and defined what it is, but to define a trigger for the listener. A trigger would be a, a response, whether physiological, emotional, whatever, to a circumstance, a, a, a word. A um, tone of voice, a, a facial to- expression. Exactly. A smell. A sound, oh, a smell is a huge. place. Exactly. So anything that's going to give you some kind of physiological or emotional response. And that could, would it be fair to say that is usually negative, but could also be um, uh, sexually arousing. Uh, but Unconsciously, too. Yes, yeah. but, but not something necessarily you want. Exactly. So it almost seems like this out of control experience that just brings you back to an earlier time mm-hmm. and it's usually negative and would um is it difficult sometimes to understand a trigger when the physiological response of that person is to be numb or to to kind of go to a dead a dead place where they aren't necessarily where they kind of check out that 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 would seem to be a struggle as a therapist yes. to identify that because there's 
really nothing. And I think I think you bring up a good point because when I started this group, I had very little insight about my own stuff and my own triggers and um kind of what what were the reasons behind my behaviors, right? I didn't I didn't have that insight. And that's why a lot of times when I work with my clients, um that's very important for me. I really value increasing their insight. If I could do anything, if I if I work with you for six months or however long, I want to be able to know that when I leave you or when you leave me, that at least your insight has increased because I know that can make radical difference. So when I started this group, I didn't have that much insight. And I can honestly say that I've that I have very good insight now. And that doesn't mean that I don't have that I don't make mistakes or I don't have situations where I just respond or react to things, but I'm able to reflect on it and process it and know, okay, this is what happened. What are the physiological responses that you have that you make you say, oh, I'm being triggered Um, or mental? I'm triggered a lot. I'm trying to think here. Does your heart start beating fast? I have really bad anxiety. Okay. I have I, I How like does that manifest itself physically in so you? my anxiety is very physiological um what I mean by that is my it's all in my gut so and I know I, I've heard that a lot um just as a therapist here and then even hearing on your podcast I've heard several guests talk about that um I get really sick I mean when I've I could talk about the last really severe anxiety, I guess, episode that I've had was my last year of grad school. And it... Say no more. <laughs> <laughs> you can't believe the emails that I read yeah. that grad students go through. It is its own emotional, mental, physical hell. But go yeah. ahead. It, it's fucking torture. Um, and I and I know my, my boyfriend and my sister could definitely attest to that because it, it really triggered me and I was putting myself through a lot of it was almost like masochistic because I was in grad school my last year I had an internship to do um in this job that I told you about that was where my internship was prior to being offered the position but I had this job I had a regular job of my own and I was in a relationship so I was doing all this at the same time plus I was having to write a paper about my family, which is not very healthy. Uh, all of those things just created the perfect storm. And I remember the way I would describe it, because I remember my mom asked me one time and I said, just imagine waking up and the first feeling you feel is like you're choking. Wow. I The first feeling, the only time I didn't feel anxiety at that time was when I was sleeping. I would wake up with just like a fog of anxiety. It was, it was, it was torture. Wow. It was bad. I remember driving to school or it was either school or internship and thinking, I don't know how I'm going to make it today. I don't know how I'm going to make it with this anxiety. Like, I don't know how I'm going to regulate it. I don't know how I'm going to be able to be with my clients when I feel like I have a thousand bees underneath my skin. I would imagine, though, being with the client is the very thing you need to take you out of yourself and your thoughts about yourself or not. I think at times when I, when I allowed myself to be that attuned to my client, everything kind of went away for a minute. But it's so physiological that even if you're not thinking about it, you're feeling it all day. Wow. 
Yeah, it was bad. And is it focused on a particular uh, thought of something happening in the future, or is it just a generalized body feeling that has that doesn't point to any event or person or thing that might happen? Um, I'm sure if I really process it, th- there are like maybe certain triggers. Um, at that time, there was just a lot going on. Um, there was like a big family issue, which. I was writing a paper about and then I have this family thing going on and, you know, you can't really escape or, you know, suppress what's going on with family when you have to really write about it. So I had to be kind of in the present. And and then I was I was really overdoing it. You know, I was working a job and I was doing an internship and I had a class and I had papers to write. So I, I'm kind of... I'm having a panic attack just hearing that. <laughs> I I kind of came to the acceptance that I am kind of a workaholic. And that's probably my way of distracting myself or numbing kind of things and just staying focused. And that's the only... I mean, that's kind of the good thing about having anxiety too is that it makes you really driven. Oh man, my wife. The house is clean when she is anxious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's... You could get some we, shit done when you're we anxious. joke about it. We joke about it. She's yeah. like, oh, I feel anxiety coming on. The house is going to be sparkling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's good for some things. Um, was it you that we, we had talked about um, your interest in mental illness and sports? Or yes. Was that some, okay. Yes. Would you like to talk about that? Yes. So I have a huge passion for sports. Um, I started playing my, my family actually my siblings and i we were all placed in sports since we were like five since really early what's your sport um or sports well my favorite sport is actually sport that i can't play but um i cannot play cannot play yeah why, so, why is that because i'm not good at it <laughs> what, what is it i love basketball i love why basketball. can't you play just in a fun rec league well i mean i i truly do suck at it i mean i tried it when um when I was younger, I mean, my mom put us in every sport possible. And, you know, obviously at that time, my parents' motivation was let's get them into something to keep them busy so they don't do something bad. So we were in soccer and softball and um, gymnastics and cheerleading and dance. And I don't know. Am I missing anything? We tried basketball. Yeah, mm-hmm. I did try basketball and I didn't have a good experience, but I love watching it. And uh, my boyfriend actually played um basketball is actually a really good basketball player and we kind of share that love for basketball and we love watching it and who's your team the lakers no the clippers right on (laughs) are you a fan right on i'm from chicago so if i'm gonna root for any team i'm gonna root for the bulls but just i love (laughs) when people root for for the underdogs (gasps) me too yeah totally so i love it and i love watching i mean i it really isn't just about my team because I just I love watching athletes play and and then be able to show their their athletic abilities. I think it's awesome and I think it takes a lot of I think it takes a lot of vulnerability to go out there every night and be under a lot of pressure and sometimes make mistakes and having to be in the press conference and talk about the mistakes and I just I see a lot of need and it's funny because when I was taking on this project I've done a lot of research on it and. I've noticed like all these different aspects of like the directory. If we look at the directory of a team or an organization, I've noticed 
that there is a coach for anything you could think of. And there is a team MD and there's a team chiropractor and there's a team dentist and all this stuff. And going down the list, I see nothing on psychology really? or social work. Nothing. That's amazing. Unless they're know- hiding it. And then I would want to know why they're hiding it. Because I know a lot of athletes do consult uh, psychologists, but but I'm really shocked that the the team wouldn't wouldn't have one. Maybe maybe there's still some stigma among the other players. I think I mean I think there is a lot of stigma, and I'll tell you why. I've I've reached out to organizations or even like my alumni, my high school, and I've let them know, hey, I want to offer a free service and just talk to the athletes about just increasing their mental awareness. I get no calls back. No calls back. Wow. Yeah. I would love to read a book that somebody does about OCD in professional sports because... Because it's rampant. It is rampant. The rituals that guys have mm-hmm. and uh, and yeah. women, yeah. Uh, the... It's endless. Yeah. And like Larry Bird wouldn't quit practicing until he hit like 53 free throws in it's, a row. It's, it's uh, Kobe Bryant. He's had, you know, now mm. that he's retiring, he's had a lot of um, interviews where he talks about almost like punishing himself. Mm-hmm. Like if he makes a mistake, he'll go home and he won't sleep that night and he'll go to the community high school or something and he'll shoot until four in the morning and it's almost like in a in a form of punishment it doesn't seem like hey i'm just gonna practice until you know i get better at this it's almost like hey you didn't win you messed up the last play of the game you know you're gonna shoot until you like you regret it or whatever it may be but which i find so interesting because it's one of the few ways of beating yourself up that maybe has a silver lining, as sick as that sounds, kind of like workaholism. Yeah. And it's almost like their OCD, their preoccupation with the sport, it works for them because that's that's their, their living. But so I, it's okay. But I always think, what's that person going to be like when they are done with the sport? Exactly. And they have to win at and everything. you can't turn something like that off. No. I mean, just working in, in the professional work, you can't turn something like that off. And how does that af- impair their life? How does that impair their relationships? Mm. And then there's things that happen like Blake Griffin, which I'm a huge fan of. And I even watched him when he was in college. And this whole situation with uh, the physical altercation with the, was it the the... The manager, the equipment manager, and he actually physically assaulted him, broke his hand, and then took him away from the game for four weeks, additionally, on top of what he was already missing. So more than anything, I would love to merge two things that I love and I'm passionate about. But what I also see, which is very important to me, is the opportunity to eradicate stereotype or stigma, right? Because... You know, you see all these endorsements with these athletes. A lot of them have nothing to do with sports or, or athleticism. And it's like, oh, I saw one recently, H&R Block for tax, and it's Anthony Davis. And then we have Subway, and then we have... My favorite one is the uh, chocolate milk is healthy. Oh, oh, yeah. That's my favorite one. I've actually... I saw it on Shark Tank, too, that supposedly ch- flavored milk is healthier or something like that. But anyways, I digress. Um... Yeah, all these endorsements that these 
these athletes get and why do they get them because people know that they could sell people know that they they're idealized and and people are going to do what they do how amazing would it be that we have an athlete or a a sports organization that says hey we're going to value the mental health of our team and our players and we're going to make sure that they're able to get that within this organization rather than going privately Mm. and what would that mean to children i look up to these i think it's changing and i think we're moving to a place where I think in the next 10 years you're you're going to see that and I think you're going to see more PSAs about mental mental health. I hope so. Yeah. Um, hope I'm so. just starting to see more and more stuff where uh, high visitability people are saying, you know, I have bipolar, mm-hmm. um, I have OCD, et cetera, et cetera. It's, um, I really think we're, we're, we're moving in that direction. I hope so. And I, I do see there's, um, I, I, I listen to obviously a lot of podcasts and I watch ESPN and there's a lot of athletes have gone on there and, and talked about kind of their own uh, support for mental health awareness. And it's just kind of something that has to go through, through time and, and hopefully people will jump on it. And I would imagine there are a ton of athletes who came from a chaotic home and if they stayed on the court or at the football field, it was a way for to a couple get out extra of their hours. Yeah, yeah, it was a way to to not have to be around mm-hmm. alcoholic dad or crazy mom or yeah. whatever. And what happens when that becomes your coping, and then it's no longer used as your coping, but it's now like a way of living? What happens mm. to that? Is it still a coping, or do you kind of lose out on that and you have to replace it with something else? I just think there's so much room for uh, for mental health awareness in that yeah. space. Well, let's talk about your life, your upbringing and, uh, and your struggles, unless there's other stuff that you'd like to talk about, um, uh, from a, uh, social worker point of view. I guess we could segue into, to me and then somehow things will probably come up as, as me being a therapist, but um, so both my parents, um, immigrated from Mexico. Um, my mom came here maybe when she was like in around junior high. So she went to junior high here and she went to high school here and, um, she was parentified. She was the oldest of eight children. Um, and she had to take care of. Yes. She had kids. to take care of all her siblings at the age of like 10. Uh, so she was doing all the home, um, duties, cooking like a full-on feast right for eight children and uh doing all the laundry um taking care of them she had um her youngest sister what was your grandma doing my grandma was a single mom and she she worked two jobs and where was your grandfather my mom's father who i do not know was an alcoholic Mm. so alcoholism and substance use um you'll notice is very runs really deep in my mom's side of the family so um my mom was also experienced some trauma so here was a 10 year old uh girl who had to take care of her siblings and deal with a lot of traumatic experiences that happened with her not counting the neglect and um lack of attachment Yeah. yeah so that's my mom. Uh, my dad uh, came here like early teens. I want to say like 15, the latest, 14. 14. And um, he came here alone and he had um, actually several, he, he had several, um, what's the word? 
he came here several times and had to be taken back. Obviously, okay. he came illegally and um, he, I think, did it like three times until he finally stayed. Um, the other times he was shipped back, but um, he came here to work. He is one of seven and he's not the oldest, but he's somewhere in the middle and he was required to come, come here, work and um, ship money back to his family and he was here alone at age 14 and wow. worked full-time if not more and lived in like a little room that he rented so obviously there's both parents who have very little attachment probably neglect um, emotional neglect and um, don't know what parenting is and then you have them have children and how many in your family? Uh, there's four of us. So and where are you? My older brother is before me, and he's like a year and a half older than me. And um, this is this is going to be key. So my brother is a year and a half older than me, and then I'm next. And then my sister and I are 11 months apart. And then my brother after her is like a year and a half. Mm-hmm. So we're all very closely. And they say the closer in age siblings are, the more they fight. Actually, I'm very close to my sister. We're, I mean, we're not even a year apart. But that, as a therapist, and just by personal experience, that really affected me. And What really affected you? Um, Being my, so close in age to yes, all your siblings? Yes. In a positive or negative way? Negative. Or negative. And, and only in the sense I love my siblings and I love having a close relationship with them and being able being close in age makes us that much closer i do believe that but as a child it 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 really affected me and i think that that continues to happen in what way did you feel lost in the shuffle like you weren't getting enough yes love or attention so i was a kid that everybody that my parents kind of describe as oh cindy was always Cindy was always a good kid. She never she never made any noise. She kind of just sat there and watched TV. So I ended up being the kid that nobody paid attention to because I was good. I was I was the exact same kid. Yeah. And those are the kinds that usually yeah. grow up being depressed and anxious. Anxious. And have trouble reaching out and we're yes. fine helping and other feel people. feel like a burden. But we don't want to ask for but help. But we don't want to ask for help. Exactly, 100%. So that's kind of how it went for me. I think to add on to that, and I... And, and not, and you would think that this would have maybe drifted my sister and I apart, but it actually didn't. I think that, to be honest with you, I think I have a closer attachment with my sister than I do with my parents. But um, my sister and I look very different. And that was very obvious to me as a child. I, I think the, the best way to describe it is a story. Um, when I was around, I don't know, four years old, if not three years old. Maybe three. And is uh, Perla the the sister that you're referring yes, to? Yes. Okay. So she just for the listeners. How's it feel? Get... How's it feel to be talked about while you're in the room? <laughs> I know, like in that? third person. I don't. Yeah. And you guys do not look uh, nothing. Uh, no. Uh, alike. Night and day. Yeah. So, um, just for the listeners to kind of get a visualization, um, my sister is very fair. Where I'm, I'm olive toned. Uh, she has green eyes, and I have brown dark eyes um for the his like in the hispanic community it's i think for a lot of minorities maybe um when there's a child that's fair skin or has lighter eyes that's looked at as very like optimal and they value that and 
as a child, I felt that. I mean, I don't have any recollection of it, which is actually kind of odd because I do feel very detached to these stories. But it was just by kind of how my mom has related this information to me. It seems very obvious to me as a child that I felt this and I knew this right away. Uh, When I was like around three or four, my mom, I don't know where she went, but my dad stayed back and took care of us. And um, my mom had something to do. By the time she got home, it must have been like two hours or so. And she couldn't find me. My dad was asleep on the bed and all the kids were, I don't know where. And um, my mom came into the room and into the bathroom and I was there filled like completely head to toe with baby powder all over me what baby powder like I had just what? dumped it all over myself for for what reason <laughs> so my mom looks at me and she's like what is going on and she's like all I could see is your eyes like fluttering with this powder and I looked at her completely serious oh I know why and I said now do I look as pretty as my sister oh my god yeah i was three years old yeah and i say that story and it's sad to me and i feel sad for that little girl but i don't feel that much connection to it like i don't remember this and obviously i was really young but it it was a difficult thing for me wow you look like you're getting a little choked up thinking about it My mom had a really difficult time after that. I think it, I don't know if she was aware of it before, but that was kind of like the thing that solidified it. And I think she, after that, um, either got on the phone or slowly told my uh, my aunts, like, if you're not going to give Cindy the same attention as Perla, like, I'm not, you can't be around them because it's really affecting her. So my mom was able to, you know, and as... Can, three, I, can I just pause for one second yeah. and ask Perla what... What, how she feels and what she thinks hearing hearing this. I've, I've heard this story many times. And it breaks my heart. She says it breaks her heart. And what is, what is that, hearing her say that, what, is, what does that make you feel, if anything? I mean, I, I know that that's how she feels. Like, I know that, I mean, she has no fault for what had happened, and I don't carry any resentment or anchored towards her and not at all and not towards anyone really but um it's kind of putting both of us in a bad place like like her feeling like she had all this attention that she never really asked for and then how that was affecting me because i do know that we both have a huge attachment to each other yeah i hate her for it is that okay (laughs) is that okay yeah perla you second me i get out of the room (laughs) But my mom and 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 as a therapist, I know the importance of repair, and that was kind of her effort of repair. And um, I know my parents did the best that they could, but there was a lot of things that it was like, "Fuck!" Like you guys just continue to make mistakes. Like and uh, and what I mean by that is, I was pretty emotionally neglected, and I think it obviously you could tell just because of the 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 whole idea of Cindy's okay. I don't. We don't have to worry about her, and that kind of goes till today even as an adult my parents still kind of in one way or another kind of make this this statement um but when i was younger i had really severe uh separation anxiety from my mom um 
like I said, we were in sports. So she would like drop us off in sports and she would go and do her errands or whatever. And I would, I thought I was going to die. Like as soon as I did not see her, I went into straight panic. Like I felt the same feeling that I described to you as an adult when I was Mm -hmm. going through really severe anxiety. I felt the same thing as a child. And were there thoughts along with it or was it just a generalized thing? Was it, I mean, would you think to yourself, my mom is never coming back? I think unconsciously I did. I think I felt like she was going to forget about me because I was always feeling forgotten in this kind of shuffle in this house of all these children. And um, my youngest brother was kind of a handful. So I felt like I was always forgotten. So I think unconsciously when I was left in these places, even though my mom would kind of reassure me, like, I'm just going to you know, go to the store. I'm going to come back. I almost felt like they always forget about me. What makes me think? that they're going to come back. And I don't know where the timeline runs. I don't know if this certain event that I'm going to say right now um, happened before this or after this. But if it was before this, it would make sense. If it was after this, it's kind of fucked up because it just reassured my own fears. But I don't know where we had came from, but we had went to maybe like a get together, a party, and we had gotten home pretty late. And my parents forgot about me in the car. I fell asleep and I wake up at midnight or so. And I am by myself in the car and I couldn't get into the house. So I had to sleep in the car the whole night. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I thought I was going to die. I thought somebody was going to kidnap me. And I remember banging on the door for like, it seemed like hours and my hands were all red and nobody would open the door. And I had to wait. I had to constantly look at the clock in the car. And you were how old? <sighs> Maybe eight. Wow. That's nine. Well, yeah, I fell asleep and. I woke up and everybody was already in the house. I mean, so I don't remember, and maybe this is me like kind of repressing that. I don't remember if this happened, if it was like kind of like the onset that created this really severe separation anxiety or if it happened after, which would increase the anxiety. Yeah. They could have at least cracked the window for you. I mean, at least like be like, hey, put a little post-it, like go through the back. And to be fair, they did park you in the shade. Yeah, so even when we talk about that, now I remember that morning, I overheard my mom talking to her brother on the phone and kind of like, shit, this is what I did. But it almost seemed like it was always minimized for me. Even my separation anxiety, like it was always like, you're too old to be having these, you know, panic attacks or these separation anxiety. You're too old for that. You were too old. But for me, it was real. I thought I was going to die. Like, I felt like my body was just going to give out. It was just in too much pain. It was ridiculous. I think people that don't suffer uh, from anxiety or panic attacks um, make the mistake, and and I can be put in this category, uh, or at least uh, it was for years, I thought if I could just say the right thing, Mm -hmm. something would click in that person's brain and their anxiety would go away. And I now know it's one of the worst things that you can do for that person because it's not about logic with that person. It's not. It's all right brain, right? It's all emotion. And it it almost feels like you're, you're drowning in anxiety and you have to like somehow because, you know, a lot of it is people are saying just swim. Yeah. Just swim. Just swim. Look, hey, I'm look, swimming. I'm throwing a life vest at you. Yeah. Just fucking put it on and come over here. Yeah, no. It's it doesn't work like that. And and I don't think my parents ever understood it. I mean, that's not surprising when you when you look at 
the way they were raised. They it's have really no not. idea how to parent. And and like I said, I know that they're they're doing and they've done the best that they could, but it just it was a difficult thing for me. And and it continues to be and I continue to work on that. And that's why it's so important to me to do my own work. I get extremely triggered uh when I feel like I'm being abandoned. Almost all of if I have a bad dream, almost all of them are about a group of people going somewhere and forgetting me and leaving without me and I'm wow. just panicked. I actually had it happen one time in real life. I was I was camping and I took too long to pack all my stuff up and and it was um up in glaciers and uh so as as you're coming down you can't really do it too quickly cuz you'll slip and fall and slide but I wanted to catch up with everybody yeah. and I just remember and I kept falling and sliding and I and I don't know if I've ever felt that much terror and mm-hmm. rage at the same time mm-hmm. I was crying and I was screaming and and I just also remember kind of looking at myself like dude you're you're almost 40 years old <laughs> what's what's going on There's here no age limit. but I abandonment is an it's an intense trigger when it comes up. Can you think of of any real life examples for you where I would imagine abandonment is a trigger? Yeah, it it is in a certain way. I think sometimes, and maybe it's my own defenses where that that place comes where you know, well, I'm actually a lot more less triggered when I'm not in a relationship. But I think. Like I said, I'm I'm definitely triggered way more in interpersonal relationships than by myself. I could do fine by myself, right? That's kind of my idea. So what Netflix was born for? <sighs> Leave me the fuck. Al- it should be called Leave Me the Fuck Alone Channel, dude. That's like my number one coping, and and <sighs> and no lie, that's my coping. And I and I've kind of identified it. That's my child, me coping. Mm-hmm. Like the little girl part in me, that's her coping. Because I've had moments where like something i've gone through a really really horrible loss and i've i felt that like i noticed it like kind of outside of myself i'm fucking regressing like all i wanted to do is watch fucking dumbo and i was 22 years old so it's fascinating what are the the big triggers for you you said interpersonal relationships but can you get more specific so a big trigger for me is feeling like I'm making a mistake. So I'm 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 a big perfectionist. So when I feel like I'm failing at something, whether that's in a relationship or um in something I said or in my work, um that's a huge trigger. And for you me. ruminate on it, I would imagine. Oh, I fucking ruminate for hours. Over and over and over again and in your brain. What I could have done right and how could I have perfected it and maybe I didn't say it right and oh, maybe I should have done this and and even little things that I don't even do. Like I'll ruminate on shit that somebody else said or somebody else did or somebody else's tone. And Toward, I, Towards you or just towards in general? Towards me. Yeah. Towards me. And I will interpret it in thousands of ways and that will set me off. Um, the do, last, you get, do you get panicked when you text or email somebody and it takes a really long time for them to get back to you yeah. and you think that they're mad at you and you're scrambling through your brain going what what did i do that was so horrible I, i've got yeah. there there must be something i've yeah. done i'm, I'm a terrible me. person and i can't see it and i can't get and i can't do it right there's always this kind of like i always circle back around to like needing to be perfect and i think that's why 
I have such a hard time being vulnerable. I think this is like one of the most vulnerable I've ever been without it being with my therapist. And even in my talking here, you mean? Yes. Even in group therapy, like I've had weeks where I've been silent and I just listen. And there's so much of it, like not not cracking this facade that I put out. And I, I think it's, it's really funny because I've gotten told by so many people like, Oh, you're always so put together. You always, you know, you have the thousands things to do and you're at school and having an internship and you still come with your hair curled and you have makeup on and you have your outfit on point and does and it's such a facade that I can't crack. Like it's so important to me how I look on the outside. What what do you think if you could put into words your deepest inner pain slash fear? What do you think it would say if you could personify? I'm never going to be good enough. And that's probably where their perfectionist comes in. I'm always striving for that. And what do you think you hope to gain by being perfect? Does that make you safe? Does that make you lovable? I think it does that. And then it also puts kind of this barrier, like where people don't go. And that's what I meant kind of by um, how much I've triggered other people. That's made me like that's informed me about myself. I've had people tell me like you are absolutely um, unapproachable. Um, I've had people tell me that I have chronic bitch face, but, you know, in a lovable way. (laughs) And um, she might be my favorite rapper, chronic bitch face. (laughs) She. <laughs> yeah, so I've gotten told like, man, before I really got to know you, I thought you were a fucking bitch. Or um So they get probably get their abandonment issues triggered I trigger by you. This unavailability. Yeah. Like I don't know you, I feel unsafe by you because I can't read you. I've had people, therapist, okay? I've had um a, uh, somebody that I worked with in my previous job that was absolutely triggered by me because she couldn't read me. And she wanted, she even told me like, you know, I, you're the most, you're the least emotional person that I've seen in here. Like, I want you to be emotional, which was her own shit, right? That was yeah. for her to feel safe. But it's, it's also informed me about myself. Like what do, how other, how others perceive me has um, given me a little bit of information of, of, of what I'm putting out and why. So obviously you've done some, some deep inner work. The fact that you were crying 20 minutes ago mm-hmm. here on the podcast with somebody that you've never met mm-hmm. before. I mean, that's, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah. What, what do you think brought about that change? Just uh, therapy and trying to be conscious of insight. your fears. Insight. I could, I could put a word to it or I could have an understanding of me and why I why the behaviors are the way they are and why I'm triggered to certain things or why I respond a certain way I'm able to kind of have a dialogue about it that I didn't have before before I just react right it's just a complete reaction to whatever is happening uh within an interpersonal relationship or somebody something my parents said I'm I'm triggered by my parents every single day but um there's that happens and then it's just a reaction and there's no there's no reflection after Mm -hmm. 
even if I have a reaction now, there's reflection, and then I could do a rep- I could repair. I mean that to me is ninety percent of recovery because mm-hmm. expecting us to not make the mistakes, to have our brain not go to the dark place immediately, is so unrealistic. But yeah. it's what do we do once we find ourselves in that familiar stinky room? We go oh. This is the this is the bad room. Yeah, and the perfection and the perfectionist to say, "Yeah, I'm wrong," is a huge step for me that what, I couldn't do before. What do you think about uh, the advice that some therapists have, which is go out and consciously make mistakes? Have you ever tried to do that? I think my mistakes are unconscious. I don't think I've ever consciously made a mistake. No, but but what I'm saying is they they say go out and consciously make mistakes just just so you can feel and face the anxiety i think for anxiety i think that would be great because a lot of anxiety is this this notion of um what happens when this happens to me this this unknown place being out of control and a lot of it is obviously this very distorted schema of for example if this happens to me i'm gonna die or if I allow my, I think I think a big thing for um, my psychoanalytic group is if I cry, I won't be able to stop. Wow. I think that's a big one in, in my group and um, the analyst that I work with who's fucking awesome. She says that. Like there's this fear that if you guys cry in here, if you guys can't do deep work in here, it's that you won't be able to stop or you won't be held, you know, by by me or by any of the facilitators. Um, and that's kind of why we hold ourselves back. So to answer your question, yes. I think in that aspect, yes, it, I think it's important to kind of go to live kind of our deepest fears to realize what's on the other end of it. Cause so much of it is this dark room or space mm-hmm. that we don't know exists. Yeah. A friend of mine said, fear is a mile wide, a mile high and paper thin. And, uh, I always think of, totally. uh, when football teams bust through that paper thing as yeah. they come out of the tunnel, I sometimes like to think whatever fear it is that's that's holding me back, that it's really just that. It that's looks a gigantic. Visualization. It looks like it's blocking out the sun, but it's really it's not. it's not that it's not that big. And I can tell you from personal experience the times when I've lost my shit the most in terms of crying and snot running down my face in my support groups those were the most pivotal moments in healing because I was uh, caught. I mean, obviously not literally, but I was metaphorically caught you by were these being people. Held. I was being, I was you being, were held. being held and I was so ashamed, you know, as, as I was sharing and I'm kind of sobbing and, and, Doing the ugly cry. Doing the ugly cry. <laughs> I remember looking up and seeing other people cry. Yeah. And that was life changing for me because I had never, I had never experienced that before. Yeah. And I realized it's okay to fall. It's, you know, it's okay to fall. Absolutely. I have a, I have a support in network. In a safe space. In a safe space. Yeah. yeah. With yeah. unconditional. I think that's the biggest thing. I think a lot of relationships that we have whether it's parents or whatever it's very conditional and then you start making having that framework that every relationship i'm going to be with is conditional i have to be in these kind of i have to be in this context else they 
they won't love me. So, uh, Alan, how do you handle it when she goes into her shell and becomes aloof Cynthia who's going to intellectualize everything? <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm... I'm mischaracterizing no, you but I, you that's how i agree that's how i picture uh, a dynamic in your relationship that would yeah. be a i could definitely be a hurdle be aloof. Yeah. to to intimacy that what does that bring up in in you alan when that can you can kind of walk over to the mic or would you prefer not to uh have your voice heard oh, that's fine um so what exactly like how do you what does it feel like for you when she kind of disappears into her aloofness and you feel like you're trying to get close to her and and it feels like she's giving you the stiff arm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, um, I mean, I, I just try my best to try to lift her up, you know, but when she's in those moods, I kind of, I really don't know what to do, to be honest with you. I, I just try to give her space and um, yeah, affection more than anything, yeah. you know, and my biggest thing is just laughing, <laughs> like, try to somehow distract her. And, and so, you, so you so uh, try not to take it personally as well, oh, because yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. For the most part, but, I kind of, understand yeah and i think i think he's i think he's not giving himself enough credit um because alan and i have very different upbringings like i think from a from my lens i think he's had pretty good attachment considering you know he's he's a baby and his parents had that time (laughs) um his brother next to him is like 12 years older so his parents were in a different space when he was born and they had to they had the opportunity to really spend that time with him be present. Mm-hmm. Um so I think it's it's different um for him to understand my kind of experience and how that's affected me. Um but even like not too long ago we got in this stupid disagreement. I got really really anxious and I just I I felt like when I when I get really bad, sometimes I feel like there's an elephant sitting on my chest. Like I can't just catch my breath. So I went and I said, I told him, I said, hey, I just, I need to just go into your room and just lay down and like catch my breath. Five minutes later, he walked in and laid next to me and rubbed my tummy and tried to do deep breathing with me and talk, like talk me through it. Like it's going to be okay. Like I and did wish, you like that? I, I wish my parents did that for me when I was a child. I like instantly I thought, wow, what kind of what how different would I be now if my parents were able to regulate me like that when I was having that intense panic attack when I was eight. But you also wouldn't be a social worker helping people. (laughs) Isn't that the fucked up thing? Yeah. I always think of like, man, why why can't we just get rid of childhood trauma? I'd be like, well, the art would suck. Yeah, that's true. They'd be sucky ass therapists. Yeah, yeah, therapists would be uh, would be different. Um, movies would just be yeah. bland. That's true. Art, I mean, especially movies because I fucking love TV. I think people that have known pain are the best artists, and they could they definitely have the best stories yeah. to tell. So you're right about that. Um, but yeah, I just I n- now working with children too is seeing like. Oh, so much difference you can make that you could just help them regulate themselves and i mean even that moment that seems like it's not that big of a deal to somebody else that was a huge moment for me because i've never had that before mm-hmm. i've usually had to like figure out how to regulate myself so that was big anything else that you'd like to uh to share or talk about um i can't think of anything unless you can no i feel like we covered uh, a lot of ground Okay. Yeah. 
I'm so glad you got in, uh, in touch with me. And um, likewise, likewise. Yeah. And I, and I hope you're able to connect with some uh, some sports teams. Yeah. And, uh, I just have to be persistent. I mean, I have to do my part, and I'm definitely lo- um, reaching out to just community teams, uh, high schools. I want to give back to the community too, and that's kind of like my ne- next leg up. So, if anybody has a sports team, and I mean, absolutely free of charge. I just I want to give back, and I think it would be great just to start young. It would be kids. good, too, to have counseling for the parents of athletes. Oh, my God. Do they need Whoa, it? Oh, dance moms. Dance <laughs> moms. I can't even bring myself to watch um, Trophy Kids. I can't bring It's a documentary about the parents, parents who oh, push I've their kids really hard that. in sports. To me, it's like beauty pageants. I, I can't watch it because I can watch something on a tragedy that already happened and is over. But to me, that's like watching somebody standing on the train tracks. It's fucking, it's It's, fucking scary to see these parents. They're like, it's like the devil comes out of them. It's fucking scary. And I, what was I, I think I, uh, someone, um, I had spoken to somebody and they had told me that their dad in the past, if they, if they didn't do good in, in a game or something that he would pull up his newspaper and just read the newspaper and not even watch them play. Wow. Yeah. That's so fucked up. My parents didn't come see me play, so I guess I don't have to worry about that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Cindy, thank you so much for coming in uh, and sharing with us. I appreciate it. No problem. Oh, if people want to follow you on Twitter, what's your Twitter handle? So I'm not a big Twitter user. I'm just getting used to it, but it's Miss Cindy Pena, C-Y-N-D-I, spelled C-Y-N-D-I. Um, and Miss M-I-S-S? M-I-S. Oh, no. M-S. M-S. M-S, yeah. C- M-S, Cindy Pena, P-E-N-A. All right, thank you. Many, many thanks to uh, to Cindy. Um, I always love when I learn uh, more about the mental health system because it's one of those things where you kind of think you picture, you think you, you picture what you kind of think it might be like and what... It's like to be in that system, either on the you know the helping side or the getting help side. But um, it's always a different picture. Um, it's always different than how I picture it. Um, before I get to some surveys, I want to remind you guys that there is a couple of different ways to support the show. If you feel so inclined, you can support us non-financially by going to um, uh, the website metalpod.com. And uh, did I say financially or non-financially? You can support us financially by going to the website and making a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, becoming a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. It may not seem like a lot of money, but it adds up and uh, it makes a big difference in keeping the podcast going and we can always use more money. Um, You can... Also, uh, if you're going to shop and buy something at Amazon, enter through the little link we have on our homepage, and then Amazon will give us uh, a little bit of money if you buy something, and it doesn't make the cost of what you're buying uh, any any more expensive. You can support us non-financially by going to iTunes, writing something nice about us, giving us a good rating that boosts our ranking, and that can bring more listeners to the show. Um, and you can support us by uh, spreading the word through social media. That's a huge, huge way to uh, to lend a helping hand. Um, so any of those, all of those, none of those, um, Herbert doesn't really care. And ultimately, I work for Herbert.
Really, ultimately, we're all working for Herbert. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Awful Lot of Falafel, and she writes about her depression, like spending Christmas alone every single day. Boy, that is a good one. About um, her exercise addiction. Four hours is enough. 3.5 is just being lazy. And then a snapshot from her life. The old thought of killing myself crashed into my mind today after my doctor's appointment. I like this doctor. She's kind and personable, but she has a terrible memory. And I've seen her four times now, and every time I need to remind her that I'm in recovery from an eating disorder. Today she mentioned that I had gained 10 pounds since my last appointment. Weirdly enough, the last appointment, I had allegedly lost 20 pounds. And before I could put the emergency brakes on, she blurted out what I knew was coming. My weight. It knocked the wind out of my sails, but also, in a small way, it gave me some relief because it was no longer a secret to me. I told her that I was pissed about that because I was actually establishing an exercise routine through yoga three times a week. She gave me the old rigmarole about cardio and resistance training, blah, blah, fucking blah. I wanted to push a picture of me from my obsessive exercise days into her face and ask, do you think this person knows how to exercise and eat right? I can't help it. When I hear any inkling of this sort of talk, I go deaf and defensive immediately. In that moment, I felt like I should express my feelings of frustration and disappointment with her for telling me my weight and not remembering that I'm in recovery. But I was proud of myself for at least sending out a stop signal with, I'm an exercise addict. She got the hint to shut the fuck up. The initial thought of eating and exercising is exhausting for me, let alone taking on the next challenge of motivating myself, finding a routine, and sticking to a routine. I'm so tired of this instant defeat. I want it to end. I don't want to live fat anymore. But then I had another thought on the way home. Even when I was a size 10 and a very average height and weight, I was still told that it would be good for me to lose weight. What the fuck? As I still felt as fat as I feel, and I still felt as fat as I feel now. Where does this end? Will it ever end? I'm losing hope. The voices have been getting so unbearably loud. I can't do these days anymore. They feel like an eternity. It feels like I'm lost in a cage without angry, invisible spirits. I'm lost in a cage with angry, invisible spirits uh, darting at me like a horror movie. I'm sick to my stomach. I'm crawling out of my skin. I want out. I want this to stop. I need this to stop. I can't reach out to anyone. They all want to help and they can't. The only way they can help is if they hold me in their arms while I sob and heave. I have so much pain. I don't think others can bear it. To which I say, why don't you try them? Why don't you give them a chance to be that friend to you because that can be the best thing not only that you can do for yourself but you can do for that person to let them express their love and get that feeling of being of service and I say this all the time but why not print this out and just read it to them um, and there's always support groups too but don't try to don't try to I mean, you're dealing with feelings that are so intense. And eating disorder, there's so much gray area. You know, it's a process addiction like, uh, you know, sex addiction, uh, where it, it's, it's something that 
many of us need to do every day. Well, food you certainly need to do every day, but for a lot of people, sex, you know, they, they want to be sexual. And so how do you, how do you handle an addiction where you have to interact with the thing that you are addicted to? It's a tough, tough thing to try to handle on your own. And, um, and plus it's, it's, it can be fun going through it with other people because they know the pain and the misery and there's always that shared laughter over it. That's what I've gotten from, from support groups. So just my two cents. This is filled out by Shithead. <laughs> it's a nice transition. Uh, they're gender fluid and they write about living with an abuser, uh, emotionally abusive boyfriend. If I could trade every word you ever said to me for a fist in the face, at least I wouldn't be so confused. That is Hall of Fame. I mean, that just sums it up in one sentence how complex and still everybody's damaging emotional abuses. Snapshot from their life. Sitting on the floor of your bedroom in the middle of an anxiety attack while you scream at me, waiting for the moment you calm down and apologize and tell me you love me so that I can breathe again. Wow, that sounds that sounds intense and overwhelming. Um, any comments to make the podcast better? More about Herbert's legs. I can't disagree because I feel like... Um, we give the impression that that it's all about Herbert's butthole, and it's really not, because he has some gorgeous, stumpy little legs. And uh, he does make them look longer by wearing uh, 60s go-go boots, which you wouldn't think would look good on a male dog, but uh, he makes them work. He makes them work, and um, that's the end of my riff about Herbert's legs. I don't know. That made me laugh. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Still Breathing. She's 18. She's bisexual. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, she was uh, sex the victim of sexual abuse and, and never reported it. She writes, My coworker, who was 10 years older than me, decided we should meet up and hang out. Me, assuming the best in people, agreed. He then proceeded to make inappropriate comments and advancements. Um, she has also been emotionally abused. Uh, any positive experiences with your abusers? My parents are my parents. I guess on some level that means I care about them. And of course, there are the good memories like birthdays or outings. They're just overshadowed by the more recent and bad ones. Darkest thoughts. I wish my parents weren't a part of my life. Darkest secrets. I used to fantasize about abuse until I was abused. Now it's my worst nightmare. Um, sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Uh, my sexual fantasies include being cared for by someone. Being vulnerable is something that I really struggle with. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would ask my parents why they feel the need to make me feel inadequate. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could skip to the part of my life where I'm no longer the least bit dependent on my parents. Right now, they pay car and health insurance. That's it. Have you shared these things with others? I have shared this with everyone except my parents. Um, they understand and agree. Not her parents, the people she shared it with. How do you feel after writing these things down? Good question mark, I guess. I just need a place to vent. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You are better off without them. You deserve better than to be around people who treat you like shit. 
Uh, any suggestions to make the podcast better? More podcasts with people with eating disorders. Um, do a search on the website um, and put in eating disorder or ED or anorexia or bulimia. Uh, any of, try any of those things and episodes uh, and or blogs will come up around those uh, topics. And another good way if you're not uh, finding any success doing doing that, is going to the forum, and there's a thread called uh, Discuss the Podcast, and uh, pose the question, hey, I'm looking for you know episodes on this topic, and um, there's a good chance that somebody will, will be able to help you, uh, help you out with that, another, another forum uh, participant. Uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to read uh, Still Breathing's um, survey is this this is a really important survey you know on the surface it seems um undramatic um you know other words you could assign to it um but the things that that she has experienced um are every bit as real and as painful as things that are more dramatic and more overt and i know i i say this a lot on the podcast but i feel like it's it's one of the most important things for people to understand who have trouble giving themselves compassion for for what they're feeling. And it starts with saying, okay, my feelings are valid. And you don't have to get um, beat or fucked by a caregiver for it to damage your soul. And... Um, I, f- I felt like like this survey is one of the most universal surveys that we've had on the website. There's so many elements of this one that I've heard in so many other surveys, and I just want to, I guess I want to honor the people whose who's, uh, whose stories aren't overt or, or dramatic, um, because I need to save everybody. <laughs> There you go, Paul. (sighs) Fighting the urge to rewind. I don't have to be perfect. There is no perfect. You never were perfect. You never will be perfect. You can't save anybody. This is a happy moment survey. I'm so uncomfortable right now. Um filled out by Go Go Gadget Self-Worth. And uh, she writes, I'm a social worker for a hospice company. I've been having a rough time knowing my place in the world and just having a rough time all around with self-esteem and self-worth. I went to my last client of the day today, a tiny Cantonese lady in her 90s who lives with her daughter. The lady doesn't speak a bit of English other than hello and thank you. When I arrived, the patient gave me the most heartwarming, toothless grin, reached for my hand, and wouldn't let go for the entire visit. After an hour of holding her hand and her laying her head on my arm, I started to pull away because I needed to leave. She spoke to her daughter in Cantonese, telling her that I was to stay with her forever because I'm so nice. She held on to me tighter, continuously telling her daughter that she wanted me to stay. It took several minutes of the daughter telling her I had to leave and the patient looking so sad before she gave me a hug and let me go. I felt my heart grow three sizes, just like the Grinch. 
It was so magical that a woman who can't even speak to me because of a language barrier saw worth in me that I was having trouble seeing in myself. I provided her with comfort in a time where she feels tired and ill more often than not and didn't want for that to end quite yet. It was a good reminder that even the small things matter and have a big impact on someone else. That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. And those are the moments that that I live for and that, that keep me going in my life, either being on the giving end or the receiving end. Um, and I used to think it was going to be money or power or recognition that was going to uh, keep my will to live going, but it never, that was never enough. Um, it, was, it was just stringing together little moments like that. This is an awful moment filled out. I love this name. The Venerable Madam Fuckface Esquire. So glad she went and got her law degree. She writes, My grandfather is a person whom I admire and respect. He always talked about my intelligence and potential, and he paid a large chunk of my tuition to my expensive university, where he used to be a professor. But since I graduated four years ago, he's been disappointed with my lack of career development and has been seemingly unable to understand how any of my mental struggles, anxiety, depression, OCD, ASD, affect me. I saw him last Christmas Eve for a family party, And as usual, he expressed disappointment in how I was living my life. I brushed it off as best as I could, but then the next day, on Christmas, he sent me an email with the subject line, What to Do. I knew from the first couple of lines that I would not enjoy reading it, and I was actually having a pretty nice Christmas, which I hadn't been able to do for years, so I put off reading it, but it bothered me for the rest of the day. Finally, once I had gotten home from all the Christmas festivities, I read it. It was a mini-essay on everything I needed to change in order to be living an acceptable professional life. It it, it included, among other things, how my working part-time was unacceptable. I had recently been demoted from full-time due to their scarcity of hours. How my lack of a car was unacceptable. And how both my volunteer work at a local food pantry and my boyfriend of nine years were a waste of my time because they didn't aid my professional development. He also suggested that I pursue nursing, which is something I have never expressed interest in. He even he never even said Merry Christmas. My anxiety upon reading this increased until I was having a full-blown panic attack. I forwarded the email to my sister and left my concerned boyfriend to go for a walk on the abandoned Christmas night streets, yelling my panic at my sister over the phone for a good 20 minutes before I felt comfortable enough to go back home. My grandfather did end up emailing me the next day to correct a typo he had made. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That is just awfulsome. What a sad, lonely man your grandfather must be, surrounded by nice things. You know, I had an epiphany when I was 40 years old that I didn't want to die surrounded by nice things. I wanted to die feeling nice on the inside and not caring what kind of things I had around me. And it's the best decision I ever made. Paul said naked and in the empty barrel he lives in. (laughs) No, we're doing okay. Uh... This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Simply Overstated. 
and uh, she writes about her depression like my brain is on dial-up that is hall of fame that is short and sweet and to the fucking point about her anorexia i can't think of a good description because my brain is so foggy from not eating a snapshot from her life coming downstairs to rejoin my family after throwing up my third attempt at eating dinner, only to rush back upstairs because the laxative I forgot I took earlier today just kicked in. My family thinks I keep running upstairs to do laundry. That is one of the most heartbreaking things is when the show that we put on because we can't be vulnerable, either because it's not safe or we don't know how to put it into words. And I hope that you find somebody that you can open up to because you deserve to be felt and seen and heard and loved. This is a struggle in a sentence. Oh, from our old uh, friend, uh, the lawyer, venerable Madam Fuckface. Um, And I bet you she's billing clients while she fills out surveys. That's how the lawyers do it. Uh... She writes about her OCD. If I stand very still, my body can't commit atrocities. About her codependency. Better at making compromises than decisions. That's a great one. Uh, Sexual bias. Having to convince people that objectification and the threat of rape is not the same as flattery. That is profound. That is... And it's shocking how many people don't understand that. Um, anger issues. Rage feels more powerful than despair. That's so true. About living on the autism spectrum. Being represented by neurotypicals who frame our painful clashes with the world in terms of how it inconveniences them. That must be really frustrating. Really frustrating. A snapshot from her life. In about sixth grade, I found a small packet on my kitchen table all about me. It was a profile of me with information contributed by my parents, teachers, and school administrators regarding my emotional problems and outbursts and included, including the phrase pervasive developmental disorder. No one had told me about any of this, but my school experience with my peers had told me clearly enough that something was wrong with me, and here was a full account detailing everything wrong with me that no one had ever told me about. I tearfully confronted my mom about it, and she tried to assure me it was no big deal. But I whispered the words pervasive developmental disorder over and over to myself before going to sleep. As an adult, I learned that this was now called autism spectrum disorder. But when I asked my mom if she had any of that documentation, she said it had upset me so much that she had thrown it all out. Thank you for sharing that. If you uh, would like to hear an episode on um, Autism Spectrum, uh, the episode with uh, listener Louise is a, is a really good one. And also the one with John H. Um, although he's not officially uh, diagnosed as that, um, I, I just listen to it. Um, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by Jaded Ivy and she's straight in her 20s raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment uh, never been sexually abused she has been emotionally abused throughout my life I've been consistently used and manipulated for my mother's own personal gain even if that meant pain or public embarrassment for me 
I struggled with understanding why the person who was supposed to always love you could have such little regard for her own child. Later in life, I learned that she is a drug addict. After years of seeing this abuse firsthand and fighting to help someone who didn't want it, I have given up. As heartless as it sounds, I know that this will kill her, but I cannot continue to suffer and fight and be hurt by someone who only cares about their self and their drugs. I am not even sad about it now, only numb to the situation. I think that is um, healthy on your part, and I think that's a best-case scenario. That's what you, that's what you have to do. Is if that person doesn't want help, you you can't watch them kill themselves because that just drags you down with them. Um, any positive experiences? She is my mother, so she has made it hard to cut myself off completely, but it does not change my feelings about the situation. Darkest thoughts. When I'm driving my car at night, I constantly just imagine myself driving full speed into a tree. The thought is so comforting to me because I know that if I did that, my suffering would be over. What are your darkest secrets? I've had three abortions within two years. I've still never talked about it out loud. Every night, I dream about the babies I would have had, oftentimes waking up screaming and or crying. I can't imagine how intense that must be. Um, sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I, I don't think I have any. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my drug addict boyfriend of six years, I keep my mouth shut and put on a happy and brave face because that's what loved ones are supposed to do. I would disagree. But I wish you could see how you're destroying me. I fight harder than I should for you every single day. Can't you see that? Every time you pick drugs, you're ripping me apart to my very core, slowly killing me. You aren't just killing yourself, you're killing me. But only one of us gets to use pills to kill the pain and erase the memories. I just want to shake him and tell him what his addiction is doing to me and everyone who loves him. I just need him to see how much I'm fighting and love him and and quit the drugs. I just need him to see, yes, I'm fighting and love him and... Uh, but I know that is unrealistic, and I know this isn't something he chooses. It's a disease, a disease that kills not only the addict, but everyone around him. Addiction is a grande. Um, G-R-A-N-D-E. Um, to which I want to say I understand that, that that is how you feel. But I think you should set boundaries with him like you have with your mom. And he is not killing you. You are staying there and allowing the feelings to kill you. And that's not to say it's not incredibly hard to detach from somebody who refuses to, to get help. Um, but standing there thinking that you're going to talk somebody into acting the way you need them to live so you can feel okay is its own disease, its own form of insanity. And you are the one that is, he hasn't shackled himself to you. You have the key. Oh, I'm starting to hate these uh, metaphors. But you have the key. You think he does because you think you would be a bad person or he might die. He might have to die, but that's not on you. What, if anything, do you wish for? No more drug addiction in the world. Have you shared these things with others? And there, and by the way, there are some great 12-step support groups. Um, and I would imagine there's some non-12-step ones, too, for uh, codependency. But um, uh, 
I mean, it's not surprising that here you are repeating the very thing that tortured you about your mom, which is what we do. We, we, we recreate our childhood traumas in the hopes that this time we can control it. How do you feel after writing these things down? Relieved and depressed. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Please tell me uh, how I am supposed to cope and deal. I am so lost and have no help, advice, or resources. This is killing me, and I don't know how to save myself. Well, that last part is what it is all about, is you have to save yourself. You have to save yourself. And you you cannot save somebody else from addiction, uh, from mental illness. Uh, There has to be a willingness on on their part long term and um, find some help for codependency. This is an awful moment filled out brave, by Brave Little Turtle and um, she writes, I've been in therapy twice a week for over two years for complex PTSD, depression and an eating disorder. A few months ago my therapist mentioned that she had received a phone call from my insurance company who was auditing my case. My therapist said that she gave them a brief summary of my trauma history. She told me that the woman on the phone told her, you won't be hearing from us again. We'll authorize unlimited sessions for her. I burst out laughing. I'm still not sure if I feel more validated that even an insurance company recognizes the amount of trauma I've gone through and the value of treatment or hopeless that I'm so broken it'll take years to make a dent in healing how fucked up I am. That is that is awfulsome. That is awfulsome. But I think more more awesome than than awful. And it's so nice to hear an insurance company stepping up and doing the right thing. Uh this is a, an email I got from uh somebody named Lila and she writes, "Hi, I am young inviting girl. I have got everything that I might need, a stable job and steadfast friends." Um I got to be honest, ever since I was a little kid, I have wanted to find young inviting girl. And people would say, but don't you mean a young inviting girl? And I said, no. There's a big difference between a young inviting girl and young inviting girl. And I can't put it into words, um, but I can express it through interpretive dance. But this is a podcast. Continuing, Uh, despite all that, I am short of the most valuable thing, a man who'd always be by my side and become a host of my house. At first, I was a little alarmed because I thought, does she want me to be her butler? And I was appalled because, A, I don't wear white gloves, B, I can't do an English accent. And C, I look bad in spats. I don't know. Do, do butlers wear spats? Continuing. If you are willing to know me better, I will send you a lot of my real life photos. I don't, I think that is, that's jumping too quickly. Um, I would prefer that first you send me before the real life photos you send me some alternate universe photos Uh, but classy because a lot of alternate universe photos can be really tasteless and um, don't go to one of those alternate uh, universe photo places in the mall 
because um, their idea of glamour is uh, we don't share it. Let's just put it that way. And then finally she says, I think you'll hit me back, Lila. I don't know what that last part means. Um, I don't know if that is that something the kids say or are you uh, into power play? I have a lot of questions. I never thought if I met a young, I'm sorry, if I met young inviting girl, it would be that complicated. That's love on the internet. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Stevie, and uh, she writes about her anxiety. Why get a good night's sleep when I can worry about death for hours in the dark? About her trichotillomania. If I can't pull out that one hair, then I'm no good as a woman. About her dermatillomania. If I can just pick until I see my own blood, then I can go back to living my life. About her codependency. Like being handcuffed to a bomb, but you've swallowed the key. Uh, Snapshot from her life. Sitting with friends, watching a movie, when I realize that I've been picking at my fingers and eating, eating the skin for the past hour. I notice a friend staring, and even though I'm horribly embarrassed, the anxiety from not eating this piece of skin is too much to bear. I look them right in the eyes, swallow the skin, and go, what's up? Thank you for sharing that. This is filled out by Abject of My Expression, and she writes about her depersonalization episodes. It's like being trapped in a bad high with no way of coming down. A snapshot from her life. I'm in the city with some friends on the hottest night of the year. I have a few drinks and I'm feeling okay, but the moment we get in the Uber, everything changes. I'm not in my body. I message my friend to try to find a tether, something to bring me back to reality. It comes back just in time for one of the worst panic attacks of my life. I'm in and out of the bar bathroom so much the other customers are staring at me. I run outside, but I can't breathe. The air is too thick. Everything is dirty. There's too many people. I grab my friend and tell her I need to go now. The Uber ride uh, back, my friend argues with the driver while I'm holding on to my boyfriend trying not to vomit and shit my pants at the same time. The moment we get into the apartment, everything lets go and I'm me again. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Some of the stuff you guys share, I just can't even imagine. I can't even imagine how overwhelming. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself B. She is uh, in her 20s, bisexual, raised in a totally chaotic environment, Uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, She writes, I told my father and brother. Uh, My sister molested me when I was a child, so I don't speak with her anymore. When I think about it, I want to throw up and hide my body. My father won't stop begging me to invite her to my wedding. She claims that her actions are absolved by her borderline personality disorder and that she doesn't remember anything. I don't think my father believes me. Uh, She's also been physically and emotionally abused. And by the way, it's your wedding. It's I I hate this phrase, but it's your day. Have whoever the fuck you want. Um, uh, She's been physically and emotionally abused. She writes, my narcissistic bipolar mother played with my mind. Most of my memories are of explosive fights and panic attacks. 
I constantly felt as if my, I don't know if it's hair or head, uh, she writes each H-E-A-R was up against a buzzsaw. I think it's head. Uh, Between my home life and my ultra-Orthodox all-girls yeshiva, uh, Jewish private school, I felt completely alone. Any positive experiences with your abusers? I have very few positive memories of my mother, but I haven't spoken with her in five years. I can only remember being afraid of my sister. I do still struggle with my relationship with my father. He was extremely neglectful, but is in my life more now that I have become more independent. Darkest thoughts. I don't think I can feel enough to be angry anymore. I feel empty. I'm only 22, but I feel like I'm 70. I don't know how to go on. Darkest secrets. I molested my brother. I told him that he doesn't need to speak with me ever again and that I'm so sorry. He forgave me, but I don't think I can forgive myself. To which I want to say, forgive yourself. Number one, you were a child. But more importantly, your brother forgives you and you you apologized. And it sounds like you're not that person anymore that did that. And plus, it was a child. You were a child. You were just repeating what was being done to you. And I imagine your sister was probably being repeating something that, that had been done to her. But your brother would want you to forgive yourself. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said that. You have taken responsibility for what happened as much as a child can have responsibility for being drawn into the cycle of abuse. Um, But please forgive yourself. Please forgive yourself. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I used to have fantasies. I think I lived some of them out with my fiance, but lately I would just like to not have sex for a while. That's probably a really good idea. And I think especially if you're opening up to somebody, maybe a therapist. Um, I think one of the more traumatizing things that we can do when we're in relationships and we've experienced sexual sexual trauma um, in our past is to just suck it up and have sex even though a part of our body is saying, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be doing this. Um, Listen, listen to that and um, maybe find a therapist who special, specializes in sexual trauma because um, the ripples from sexual trauma are very widespread and very complicated and can be really, really confusing, if not impossible to navigate um, on our own. Have you shared these things with others? I have. Between my fiance and best friend, I've said everything. That's great. How do you feel after writing these things down? I'm surprised that the words on this page look almost as bad as the feelings in my heart. Sending you some love. Sending you some love. Any comments to make the podcast better? I would love to see more religious extremism survivors. There are some. Um, Derek Block, B-L-O-C-H, survived a lot of abuse in Scientology. Um... Uh, listener Julie J um, had a mother who was almost like the mother from Carrie. Um, there have been there have been many. Um, Hillary A 
was raised uh, in uh, Christian Science and had a mom who was used it kind of as a as a weapon. And then the two episodes that I just recorded this week with uh, Glenn Washington and Jamie DeWolf, um, they were both raised uh, in in that environment. And Jamie is the great grandson of L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, and Glenn Glenn was raised um, in a, a very very um, culty uh, Christian cult. This is a happy moment filled out by Yvonne and she writes, I work from home which acts exacerbates my depression by making me feel lonely. I often try to take a walk during my lunch break. Yesterday while taking a walk with my headphones on, I see a tiny dog running up to me uh, all of a sudden. He ran with such urgency that I automatically thought he was going to bite my ankles. Instead, the puppy ran up to me, licking me like crazy and trying to jump on my legs. It was a moment of pure joy for him. And for me, I don't remember the last time an animal or a human was that excited to be in my presence, and it made my week. I love that. I love that. I don't know if I could ever not have dogs because no matter how shitty my day is when I come home and Herbert and Ivy are there it's just it's just the consistency you guys know what I'm saying it's just and puppies fuck I wish pharmacies could make a bag of puppies that would fit into a little pill bottle and then you could open it up and it would expand like into a room full of puppies. Would somebody please, could we get uh, Elon Musk to, to work on that? This is a happy moment filled out by Catholic Guilt and she writes, every day when my 12-year-old mutt dog and I go for a lunchtime walk, which I typically am bothered by because it forces me to interrupt whatever depressing thought pattern I'm in and go outside, at the end of my walk, my dog will go nose first into the grass on our lawn and roll around like a maniac, then lay there soaking up the sun. He does it with such boundless enthusiasm and joy, and every single day it makes me laugh and takes me out of my otherwise repetitive thoughts for a minute. I sit down with him while he sunbathes, and I give him a belly rub. I always feel better after these little walks. Um, I know it's a lot like the previous one, but I, I just like how it reminds us uh, how much joy and peace there is and just being present. It doesn't take a lot. It doesn't take money. It doesn't take... There's so many things if, if we can just uh, just stop and appreciate them. And I also love this because that's exactly what Ivy does. Um, she loves to sit and roast in the back. You know, where we live in Los Angeles is uh, it's nowhere near the ocean and it gets super, super hot. And it'll be like 110 outside. And she'll just lay on the hot bricks and just uh, loves it. And she'll, she'll, she'll roll around in the grass and make this... It's like a, an aggravated noise. like uh, Almost like she's fighting the grass with her, uh, with her back. But I love it. I love the personalities of dogs. How specific they can become and um and also how they can change uh herbert was like this polite meek little dog when we first got him and barely made a peep and then uh he started to 
we heard his bark after like, I don't know, it was like a week or two. We're like, oh my God, he made a noise. And now you cannot shut him the fuck up. He stares up at the counter where the treats are and just moans. And you could have given him a treat five minutes earlier. He doesn't give a shit. He is, uh, yeah. If he were a movie, it would be called Relentless, the Herbert Story. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Lettuce Head, and she writes, uh, seeing the photos of a friend shortly before her death from cancer and thinking, wow, she's lucky she's thin. When the orthorexic part of the brain adds, without even trying, that's why she's so loved right now. That is so painful. I don't know, know what orthore- orthorexic part of the brain is, uh, you know, as opposed to the anorexic part of the brain. Um, but I feel like I don't need to know what part of that brain is um, just because of what it... Wow, that is deep. A snapshot from her life. Every day I wake up with the discipline to take care of myself, having a digestive illness and food restrictions and dying to chew a deadly hostess snack cake and spit it in the toilet over and over again. But it would be a sin to do that to my organic vegetables. Actually had suicidal thoughts when I realized even my favorite food, fucking nine vegetable vegan sushi with spicy mayo could kill me. Celiac is a bitch, and I wish it upon all of mankind so that every human ditches furthering the processed foods that they take for granted while I pray not a speck of gluten or tree nut touched my goddamn god food. Why should there be, uh, quote, possible tree nuts? unquote, in my preloaded peppercorn grinder. I already had to give up Nutella, and it's not like I'll lose any weight in return. Yeah, that is, that is, uh, man, you don't realize how good you have it until you find out you can't eat something. This is uh, filled out by Sarah, and she writes about her depression. Severe clinical depression is waking up, waiting for the day to end. Profound. Profound. Any comments to make the podcast better? Um, this one might make uh, regular listeners kind of chuckle. But she writes, I'd love to hear more guests dealing with incest, victims of child molestation, and still having to socialize with that family member, uh, more young adults having depression and anxiety, and more first-generation American clients. Um, and the reason I said that is because I worry sometimes that we have um, too many sex abuse uh survivor stories on here so it it was refreshing to hear that 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 somebody doesn't think uh, there's too much of that um but again use the search tool on the on the website and um or post a question in the forum under the uh, discuss the podcast thread um I would definitely like to talk to more uh, adults that have depression, young adults that have depression and anxiety. Um, I guess it also depends on what you mean by what qualifies as a young adult because, you know, to somebody that's 18, they wouldn't consider somebody who's 27 to be a, a young adult, but somebody who's 50 would consider somebody uh, who's 27 to be a young adult. And more first-generation American clients. That we do have uh, quite a few of. Um, Juan Medina is one. Um, uh, uh, Nadere uh, Fanoyan. Uh, actually, she emigrated here. 
Um, uh, Lynette Carolla is first generation. Um, I think there's probably about 10. Uh, Michael H. is one. Um, I think um, Anna Akana is first generation. Yeah, I think there's I think there's a whole bunch. And I also think uh I could be wrong, but I think Melissa Villasenor might be. I might be wrong about that. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by abject of my expression, and she writes about her depression. My depression is the constant question, why should I? That is a good one. Boy, that is a good one. About her anxiety, my panic attacks feel like I'm going to vomit, shit my pants, and pass out all at the same time. There is a there is a diaper for that, but it actually goes all the way above your lip, and it has uh, shock absorbers on it, but it does the trick. But you can see it underneath your pants and above your shirt. I either think that's a really funny joke or the biggest waste of time in the history of humanity. This is, uh, I'm not done with this one, uh, about living with an abuser, wondering how I'm going to cover up future bruises while preparing to discuss something serious with my parents and shaking so badly with anticipation that I can barely speak. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Uh, about having depersonalization, um, finding myself in a car in the city, not knowing where I am desperately texting my friends to make sure everything is real and not a lucid dream. Oh my God. Snapshot from her life. I remember sitting at the kitchen table with my family on a Saturday afternoon eating lunch. I was going to inform my parents of my plans for the evening and was mentally bracing myself for an argument about it. My voice started to shake because I knew my mom was going to object and I reached up to brush my hair out of my face. The next thing I know, me and the chair are flat on the ground. My dad thought I was going to hit my mom and knocked me out cold. I picked myself up, finished my lunch, and went up to my room and stayed there for the rest of the day. No one has ever said a word about it. Why Why wouldn't your brain depersonalized to save you from that. That is... It's just one of those speechless moments, you know? Thank you for sharing that. This is an awful moment filled out by Venus. And, uh, she writes, I went to a stranger's house for an orgy. I didn't know anyone there, but I established a feeling of control by becoming the first person undressed, making out with a girl while everyone else was watching us, fully clothed. The doorbell rang unexpectedly. All eyes looked from me to the host of the orgy. Her eyes turned to me with a look that asked, You're totally naked. Is it cool with you if more strangers come in? It was cool with me. After all, I fed off the attention. So in walked this new guest who looked right at me, the only nude body, and said loudly, 
I know you. It was a childhood friend of mine who I hadn't seen in years. I froze in shock. What an awfulsome small world. So to cope, we had sex on the floor in the middle of the orgy. You know, part of me wanted to comment on, oh, I wonder if there's some type of, you know, wound that, you know, are reacting out here. I shouldn't be laughing. I was just like, you know what? It's a fucking funny, awfulsome moment. Just read it. I'm not here to fucking... Whatever. <laughs> Sometimes I take myself so fucking seriously. It's just exhausting. I guess I'm so afraid that you're going to think that I have failed, that I failed. Like there's some responsibility in doing this podcast that I'm not aware of, that I've never been aware of, and I've and I'm grossly um, missing the mark on, and that I'm going and somebody is going to be hurt because of my ignorance or laziness. That's really it. That's really at the heart of it. Um, this is a happy moment filled out by Ch- Chami Tong. And uh, he writes, I love this one. He writes, I was playing catch with my nine-year-old son and he was looking at the ground kind of sad. After a little prodding, I was finally able to get him to speak. I just remember back when you used to hit me when I was bad, he said. You see, before he was too old and I didn't know that I was abused as a child and honestly thought that I was doing the right thing by spanking him when he was bad, um, I read a few articles on spanking and was horrified to find that I was on the wrong side of the argument. I ceased the practice immediately. After my son said that to me, I sat him down and explained that I was wrong in doing that and that and that uh, my point of view has changed and I won't ever touch him that way again. You could see a rush of relief and love pour out of him towards me as he said, I forgive you, Daddy. It was in that moment that I realized I am truly breaking the cycle of abuse in my family. I mean, does it get any more beautiful than that? Or realistic? That is, that is awesome. Another happy moment filled out by uh, uh, Abject of My Expression, and she writes, It's kind of strange to think about it as a happy moment, but I felt so much relief when my therapist believed me when I said I had dissociative episodes. I used to tell people about them when I was younger, and people said I was making it up, and it wasn't a real thing, and I was crazy. To have her tell me that it's real and it's okay took off years of shame and regret. That's beautiful. There's nothing like having our pain and our struggle reflected back and validated. Nothing. And it's crazy the lengths we will go to to try to have that done in a way that's not healthy. You know, by becoming a billionaire or, you know, getting a gazillion YouTube followers or... I had to tell you, you know, the little tastes of success that I've had in... TV and being on TV and, you know, having years of making um, a good paycheck, it never, ever filled my soul the way being vulnerable 
and connecting to another human being in a vulnerable and honest, loving way has been able to fill my soul. This is filled out by Quiet Irish Guy, and it's a struggle in a sentence survey. And he writes um, about his anxiety, so tense at the thought of being around people that being alone seems a better option. You'll make a mistake and look stupid. You'll say the wrong thing and sound like an idiot. Everyone will see through you. Small talk is pure torture. Oh my God, do I relate to so much of that. About alcoholism and drug addiction, drinking has always been my go-to uh, to anti-anxiety. I know it's not right or healthy, but I also know I'll keep going to it when I really need to be around people. If only meds were as cost-effective as a 12-pack. Or if a 12-pack didn't have terrible side effects like exacerbating depression, putting us and others in physical danger, on and on and on and on. Um, and you might be able to find... Um, uh, try Googling Lofi therapy and the name of your town or city and you might be able to find or Google Lofi uh, psychiatry and you can often find um, uh, people that will work on a sliding scale. A lot of county facilities um, will give free meds. There are certain pharmaceutical companies that you can apply um, to get free or very uh, reduced cost meds. So there are some avenues um, other than self-medicating with, uh, with drugs and alcohol. But I know it's when you're depressed, the fucking last thing you want to do is go, uh, I need to go look for something. I can't even peel the covers back. The fuck am I going to get my head together enough to do an internet search and then is that the right phone number? And oh, they put me on hold or they transferred me to somebody else. And yeah. I understand it feels overwhelming, but it's almost never as bad as we make it out to be in our brain. Uh, about his love addiction, I fall in love easily and intensely. Then it's not new anymore, and I do everything I can to make the other person w walk away. Uh, about his sex addiction, sex has always been a validation tool for me. If someone was willing to have sex with me, whether it was ongoing or uh, a one-time thing, then they must see something attractive or good about me. In relationship times, once the sex slowed down, I'd feel unvalidated and start to wonder what I did. Sex has really always been about seeking approval of parents I never really got. That's so, that's so, so true, I think, for so many of us. About his compulsive negative thinking, I've only found two workarounds for this. One, stay so fucking busy that I just don't have time to think about me. And two, think horribly of others to deflect the hate onto someone else if only for a moment. Those are pretty, pretty, pretty bad workarounds. Um, about being an abuser, he writes, I hate that I am, but I am or was. I carry so much shame from my actions in relationships that I've decided I am not worthy of another. I cannot be trusted. I can be a master manipulator. It makes me sick to think, think of the things I've done. I can't even bring myself to write about it here. I think I'm a fucking monster. About his anger issues. My fuse, which has been slower to burn in the last few years, has always been pretty short. So many innocent walls that took my unwarranted Oh, so many innocent walls that took my unwarranted abuse. My anger is always there under the surface like the ocean on a moonless night. It's deep and fluid, and one day it will cause disaster. 
Snapshot from his life. I was ten and a half years old the last time I saw my father. He and my mom had been separated for several months when she decided he could come for a weekend to celebrate the birthday of one of my younger brothers. It was a great weekend. I was so sure he'd stay. Of course, he didn't. The thing I remember most, though, is this. He and I sat on the front steps of the duplex my mom, brothers, and I lived in. The sun was shining, and I was sad he was leaving. He put his arm around me and swore he'd be back for my 11th birthday. There was no visit. There was no phone call. There wasn't even a card. There was only the clear message that I didn't matter to him. And if you don't matter to one of the two people you're supposed to mean the most to, who would you even matter to? Well, I can tell you a lot of other people that you don't happen to be related to that share your story and know how you feel and will love you until you can love yourself. And I know that sounds like a bunch of fucking crazy, horseshit, new agey, touchy-feely bullshit, but it's not. I'm as cynical as they come. And... I should say I was as cynical as they come. And um, it's a draining way to live. Self-medicating with drugs and alcohol and cynicism and isolation and just being so angry all the time. It's so tiring. And the way I live nowadays is so not tiring it's so empowering, it's so validating, it's so connective, it's so peaceful. And that's not to say I don't have ups and downs or problems or fears or anxieties, but it's possible. If a, if a jackass that, can, that tells dick jokes uh, can change his life, so can you. And I, I've really related to um, a lot of the stuff that you shared the feelings. Uh, this is filled out by Mommy Dearest and, I'm sorry, Mommy Drearest. And she writes about um, her dissociation. Disappearing behind eyes that aren't my own, looking out and examining the point of view picture showing a life with which I can't engage. Shrinking smaller and smaller until the picture fades. I exist, if only as a fist-sized numbness pressing against the back of this skull. In fact, I exist inside a skull without appendages, without a torso, a floating skull, floating in the air as if levitating on deep anguish. I'm free and trapped, existing outside of time, omnipresent, an unintentional deity with no followers. My body is searching for me and I want to be found. Feel each toe along with wide, flat soles. Press, it, press against the pavement. A snapshot from her life. Today I was walking beside my children, nine-year-old daughter and six-year-old son, in the grocery store, and they were chatting about friends and things that happened during the school year, just being silly. Meanwhile, I'm holding back tears and then fading off into a dissociative moment, thinking sometimes I wish I had a sense of humor and knew how to make light of things. At least those around me wouldn't suffer my lack of engagement and sadness. I worry that my kids will only remember me fussing and staring off. 
I did not ask for this and neither did they. They deserve a more present mom, a mom who plays and kids, but I find it hard to model things I never experienced. I've taken up yoga recently in the hopes that it will help, and it has a bit, but I fear I'm not capable of being the mom I'd always hoped to be. My mom is currently in a state nursing home because she sh- She suffers with mental illness, and I'm so afraid of becoming like her and resent her for not being able to be a mom to me. I also feel a lot of empathy for her, though. She had her first child at 15 and four children before she turned 21, and the father of her children, my dad, turned out to be a child rapist. My earliest memory is my father abusing me while changing my diaper. I was maybe one and a half or two. I can't remember a time feeling safe or innocent. Everything began before I started forming memories, so I've been dissociating for a long time. I want counseling, but I don't work, and it's hard to convince my husband who doesn't trust in counseling and doesn't want to pay for it. The only support groups near me are religion-based, if only I had more options. Again, try doing the, and my heart goes out to you, I can't imagine what what that is like, and having kids on top of that. And two things spring to mind. No, number one, keep searching. Fuck what your husband says. Doesn't matter what he believes in. You listen to this podcast so you have heard the power of people asking for help and getting help. Um, Google low-fee therapy, like I said, in the name of your town or city, and I have the feeling the universe is going to meet you halfway. And the other thing um, is... I think of that the, what Teresa Strasser, uh, her therapist, said to her when Teresa was totally stressed out that she was going to be a failure, you know, uh, like her mom was at raising children, and um, and her therapist said, or she read a book I can't remember, but the phrase "good enough, mom," that's really what kids need. That's the real realistic goal is to be a good enough mom. And um, I just thought I'd share that with you. But thank you for that. That was such a heartfelt and uh, descriptive snapshot of your of your life. Um, this is a happy moment filled out by single, almost ready to mingle. And she writes, emailing a new therapist to tell her that after three sessions, I would not be coming back. I've had two therapists in the past two in the past who were both very helpful. But when my last counselor moved, I sought out a new one. Nothing was wrong with the new shrink, but something in my gut kept telling me this isn't the right person for me. On the podcast, Paul has said over and over, if you don't feel good about your therapist, move on. Thank you for that, Paul. I feel such great relief, and this is just proof that I can trust myself that much more. I feel like you had my back somehow. Would have given me a pat on the back and a hug and said, good going, girl. You did the right thing. That took courage, and I'm proud of you. So thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. That's so nice to to get to get things like that. And, um, and I like to share it with you guys, too. Um, I'm sure part of me, because I want to I look good, but I think there's also a part uh, of me that um, wants you to see how much um, pleasure the podcast brings me because people ask me a lot of times how do you how do you handle doing that such heavy stuff day in and day out and it's things like that it's things like that that just 
um, just make it all worthwhile. Um, you know, I was going to read, I was going to read this next one and it's pretty heavy and graphic and, um, I'm just not really feeling like, uh, <laughs> after he says, after he says, <laughs> I read something like that and I can handle all the heaviness. Literally the next survey, I can't do this. I can't do this. I've, um, it's not because I can't take it. I just don't really want to read it right now. We're, we're, uh. Our next three are all uh, happy moments, and I just feel like we've hit a good, a good upswing here that we're gonna we're gonna end on. This one was filled out by uh, Marty, and uh, Marty is a gender and writes: I went to a concert with my dad a couple of years ago. While we were driving home, a lot of sky lanterns flew by. For those of you that don't know, they're also called Chinese lanterns, and it's basically like a little tiny hot air balloon that's made of paper. And uh, he writes, there were at least 30 of them. It was beautiful, and I felt so completely happy and peaceful. It was one of those rare moments I really believed I was going to be okay. Thank you for that. Wish you would have taken a picture. I'd love to see a picture of that. Uh, This is filled out by, it's okay to be vulnerable. And she writes, yesterday my husband saw me in the way so many of us want to be seen. He saw my pain and asked if I was okay and if I needed to talk. Sometimes life is so busy, working and caring for two children, which makes really seeing each other difficult. But it happened. He held me while I cried and shared my pain and fears about how being an an adoptee has left me always feeling like I don't belong anywhere, how my past haunts me and how alone I am without family. How I'm scared that he and the kids are all I have, and if it fell apart, I'd be desperately alone. It was so hard to share those things with him because they are so painful. I feel I have to keep them hidden and safe because any response other than support would shatter me. I was vulnerable, and he was safe. He listened, affirmed, and and loved on me, told me how important I am, told me I belong, and thanked me for letting him in. I'm grateful for that moment and for a partner who cares. I mean, that is, that is just intimacy at work right there. I never realized my fear of being vulnerable was making intimacy impossible in my marriage. I could never see it. I saw it as weakness. And, I mean, I wish that I could say uh, that if, before I got sober and really delved into therapy and all that other stuff, my wife had come to me like you did to your husband, that I would have reacted like your husband, but I wouldn't have. I would have tried to approach it logically because I would, I would have never... At that point, I'd never experienced true vulnerability in my life, and I was still living in the intellectual world, and I couldn't put that aside, so I would try to logically get you to a place where you would feel safe, and that is A, impossible, and B, not what that other person wants in that moment. That person just wants to be held. They don't want to be fixed. They want to be seen, and um, that's like... 
that's the foundation of of intimacy and um i love it i love it and then finally this is from book nerd jen it's a happy moment and she writes while listening to the npr podcast invisibilia or invisibilia bilia bilia i don't know i had a breakthrough uh, and by the way, a lot of you, uh, thank you for the emails. You, When something cool comes on the internet, um, you guys are so good at alerting me to um, other podcast episodes or articles or whatever. And a lot of people uh, pointed me towards, towards this. Uh, she writes, this particular episode uh, called The Problem with the Solution talked about a different way of treating mental illness. Rather than lock people away, a town in Belgium pairs patients with people who take them into their homes to live. They are seen all over town, just living among everyone else. No one talks about diagnoses or conditions. Sometimes people on the street would talk to themselves, but people just would say hello and carry on. There was a man who would twist the buttons off his shirt to cope with his anxiety, and his host would sew them back on each night. When someone suggested the host sew them on with fishing line, she couldn't believe what they were saying. Her response was, how can I take away something that helps him? That would be cruel. When I heard this, I cocked my head to the side like a dog does when you talk to them. I couldn't quite understand what this meant. Could that man really just twist his buttons off daily and that's okay? At the end, they talked about how people's issues would improve in this environment. When people were no longer just their condition and no one was trying to, quote, fix them, they would just get better. They still had issues, but the severity lessened. They lived in homes and had support from people who did not want to change them, just comfort them. That's real. That was a real huge moment for me. Uh, it came in my therapy session the next day. I told my therapist about this, and I saw her start to smile. She asked me if I felt pressure to be fixed. I said yes. And how does that make you feel? Broken. Sick. Damaged. Ashamed. She told me that everything I've talked to her about in the last year are things most people struggle with, but mine are more severe um, more more severe uh, that everything I've talked to her about in the last year, but mine are more severe. Okay, end of sentence. But they are human. Sorry about that. I am just human. I love that <laughs> I was fucking up right around the sentence that says, I am just human, and inside I was beating myself up. Uh and my problems may be overwhelming, ADD, social anxiety, depression, general anxiety, etc., but I can make them work for me. Could knowing how depression and anxiety feel help me help others? Will I be a more understanding parent when I have kids? Yes, I can be. After my session, I went home to my husband and told him all of this. I couldn't help but cry as the words poured out of me. I didn't even think I would cry, but it struck me to my core. I didn't feel, I didn't need to feel damaged anymore. I don't need to be fixed. There is no magic day when I'll be normal. To try is real insanity. Like you say, there is no normal. My husband said to me, baby, I'm glad you realized that you are perfect how you are. He held me while I cried and finally felt like I didn't need to be anything other than myself. I knew in my head that I didn't need to be cured, but I finally felt it in my soul. I have a lot of work to do, but I think this will allow me to love myself as is, and that will make it seem less like work 
and more like an adventure, a puzzle to work through patiently. I can do that. That's just... That's just so awesome. That is just so awesome. And yet it's the hardest journey. Ugh, I hate that word, journey. Love the band. Hate the word. Um, and then I think that's why I, I just always keep harping on the open up to somebody, find somebody safe, let your walls down. Keep them up around the people that aren't safe, but um, find somebody that's safe and let them, and let them down. And... Um, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I hope if you're hurting, you're willing to try something new. I hope you're close to that point where you're going to reach out for help and um, know that things can change. And never forget that you are not alone. Well, you can you can forget it on Sunday afternoons because um, that's what Sunday afternoons are for: is uh, eating shitty food and forgetting that you're uh, not alone. The rest of the week, remember that you're not alone. Occasionally, go fuck yourself if you can squeeze in time for that. Um, carve out a little piece of time to think about Herbert's butthole, and then be good to yourself. And um, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.